Well, it's good to see you this morning and to worship with you. It's uh, always a privilege. If you brought with you a Bible, if you want to turn with me to John chapter 7, if you're new with us, uh, we've been walking through John uh, this year. It's a series called Fully Alive. Uh, The whole book of John was written intentionally to help us to believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing we would have life in his name. So uh, as we uh, go uh, portrait to portrait, text to text, chapter to chapter, uh, our our hope is that God will, will widen and deepen uh, our love, our affection, our trust, um, our picture, our gaze uh, in Jesus Christ alone. And so we are glad that you're here. And so John chapter 7, if you brought a Bible, if you didn't, uh, there should be one in a seat near you. And if you don't have one at home, uh, we would love for you to take that home uh, as a gift. And so I'm going to pray for us uh, as we get started, okay? Father in heaven, we uh, come to you uh, This morning, believing that what we are about to read is from you. And I pray that you would be faithful to me as you were to Moses and that you would help me to speak and show me what to say. I pray that you would help us as a church family and that you would be faithful to the promise that you've made to us that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would have understanding of these spiritual things. And so, God, I pray that you would fortify our faith. I pray for those in the room who do not know Christ, the Savior and Lord, and perhaps are seeking and wondering what Christ has said and what are his claims. I pray that today, Lord, that you would open up their eyes to help them to see the glory and the greatness of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us to believe as we read this and to apply it to our life. We do love you. We're grateful. And the things that we're to learn, God, would you please help us, Lord, to practice these this week. And we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John chapter 7 and chapter 8 uh, are two chapters that have troubled me for years. Um, what we find here is the smoldering bitterness and resentment and hatred uh, that built through John chapters 1 through 6 finally burst into flame in chapter 7. Uh, John removes all doubt in John chapter 7, verse 1, when it says that the Jews were seeking to kill him. And I think the reason that this has troubled me, it's not troubled me my whole life, but it's troubled me the, the longer that I have walked with the Lord and the longer that I've known the Lord. I think it's for this reason. When I was first reading John uh, to, to even examine the claims of Jesus for myself the first time to see if this is the king of kings that I need to bow my knee uh, to. I, 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 um, I read this um, and I was a dis, uh, uh, not a passionate reader in the sense that I didn't feel like the first time through that I had anything necessarily to lose or to gain. Um, I didn't love the people. I didn't enjoy the people that I was reading about. I had no relationship with anyone there. So it was a story. But what's interesting is, uh, is now 24 years later, walking with the Lord. And when I read John chapter 7 and chapter 8, it disturbs me because I find myself having to ask the question, how can people hate a person so fiercely whom I love and enjoy so deeply? Now I'm a passionate reader. 
But what I find is, as I read this, it troubles me because I find myself wanting to jump into the story and stop their plot and plead Jesus' case. And yet the problem is that I know, because I've read the rest of the story, that I really need Jesus to get to a cross. Because if he doesn't get to a cross, if he doesn't go through what he has to go through, which is so much injustice, that, that he will not die and I will not be forgiven. And so it troubles me that somebody now that I love talking to and I love hearing from, when I read of people who want to kill him, and that's exactly what John chapter 7 is all about. The setting of John chapter 7 is one that if you could kind of boil it down to one word, I would use the word chaos. All of Jerusalem is overcrowded. It's overpopulated due to the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths was something that God ordained in the Old Testament for his people. If you remember, Moses led this nation out of Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years. And there they camped for 40 years. They set up booths or tents. And God provided for them. And he gave them water. And he gave them light. And he gave them food and protection. And so what God did is he says, I want you to have an annual feast where people from all over Jerusalem, all over Israel would flock to Jerusalem. And you'll sleep in booths or tents for the week. And you're going to commemorate and celebrate my provision to you as a people for those 40 years. So you have to understand, lines are really long. All pathways, all rooms, all buildings, all all staircases, everything is packed. There's people everywhere. It's like walking into a stadium where there's so many people all around you that you can't take a full step. This is the feats of booze. This is Jerusalem at this time. The temple is no doubt breaking tons of fire code. And what's interesting is like a, like a page out of Where's Waldo books, right? Where, where you have this, this intricate picture with literally thousands of people all over this setting. They're all really, really small. And the job is to find one guy with a red and white striped shirt. Here, Jerusalem is populated with people. Everybody's in a frenzy and everyone is looking and talking about Jesus. Verses 11 through 13 says it like this. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people, while some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Four different times in John chapter 7, we're told that there was a plot to arrest him. It's an interesting thing. And so what happens is after refusing to travel with his unbelieving brothers to Jerusalem, Jesus literally goes right into the midst and stirs up this cauldron of enthusiasm when he suddenly appears right in the middle of the temple and he starts preaching and teaching. And we read the response. We're going to start in verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the scattering of the Jews among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me 
and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Let me just pause in reading here. John is assuming by that comment something that we, the readers, know, and that is that Jesus indeed was born in Bethlehem. But he was shortly had to flee Bethlehem with his parents. He, then he grew up in Nazareth, and so everyone at this time believed that he was from Nazareth, which was in Galilee. Verse 43, so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And the officers then came to the chief priest and Pharisees and said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus. Remember him from John 3? Well, Nick is back, right? He says that who had gone to him before and who was one of them said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So I want to share with you once again, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, Three really critical things about Jesus that he wants you to know. That if you know them and apply them to your life, they will affect the way that you live this week. The first is this. They all have something to do with Jesus moving somewhere. Okay, The first is that Jesus moves. Jesus always moves at the right time. He always moves at the right time. You see, the peace with which Jesus carries himself throughout John 7 and 8 is absolutely stunning to me. There's no rush, there's no fretting, there's no worry, unlike me and unlike you. We go through challenges and we go through circumstances, sometimes even really tense ones, and we don't behave. We don't look like this often. I remember years ago, it's actually 25 years ago, I was in Zimbabwe, Africa, maybe 24 years ago, and we were showing the... Jesus movie out in the village. We had a generator and there's about five or 600 people that had gathered and we had a sheet for a screen and a little projector and we put it in there and showing the video. And it was interesting to watch that the people became more agitated as they watched the film of Jesus, the closer we get to the cross. And sure enough, when he goes to the cross and then he rises from the dead, it was really interesting. Of course, I don't know Shona and they didn't know English and and, but, but just to observe, you can see the human element of people watching something that they know what's going on and you know what's going on and you know what they're thinking by their, their, their own reaction. Well, they became really agitated. Well, after the movie, I was supposed to get up and share the gospel and then to pray with people who would like to receive Christ. And all of a sudden, people start throwing things and they really become agitated and it really becomes stirring up. And I'm not, 
I'm just kind of looking around, and so our missionaries says, I want everybody to get into the car right now. And so, and so we make it to the car, we shut there, and literally they're pounding on the, on, on the doors and the windows, and they're starting to shake, and, and, and I'm driving, and we're in Zimbabwe, which means that the steering wheel's on the wrong side of the car, and we're supposed to draw, drive on the wrong side of the street. Of course, that's if you're from here. And and so I'm a little, I'm like, I'm not quite sure what to do. So I'm startled, right? I don't have this peace in my life at this time. And he just says to me, he goes, Brian, no matter what you do, he says, do not stop. He said, drive slow. He said, they'll move, but do not stop. And sure enough, we get back to our missionary housing and all of us are going, who can you believe that? That was a close call. Now you, you take that and you filter it through John chapter seven. And what you find is this is that in this story, we find no panic in Jesus. We don't find him and the 12 getting away under a tree. And Jesus saying, boys, now that was a close one, right? When the officers come to arrest him, these are officers that are familiar with arresting people. They know how to do it. They never put a hand on it. And yet they go to him repeatedly in the chapter to arrest him. When they go to arrest him, Jesus says calmly, he says, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me and you can't come. In other words, what he's saying is you came to arrest me, but you need to understand something. And that is I choose where I go and I choose when I go there and I choose who's going to follow me there. There's no, there's no alarm. There's no, there's no worry. And the reason We read in verse 30, it says, and no one laid a hand on him for his hour had not yet come. You see, most of us, we view history like a bag of jelly bellies, okay? Now, jelly bellies are very different than jelly beans, okay? In jelly bellies, there's about 50 flavors and they put them all in the same bag together. So if you just reach in and grab a handful and you throw them all in the same time, you're going to get a little bit of pear and a little bit of popcorn and a little bit of peanut butter and a little bit of raspberry all in one and it really doesn't taste that well. Raspberries are intended that we take one, we take one and enjoy it. And I think that's very nice. I really like that flavor. And a lot of times we view life as random as a bag of jelly bellies. We don't know why things happen. We don't see cause and effect to everything that's happening in the earth. Sometimes life feels like just a collection of random events that just kind of take place, that that this person's doing this for this reason, and this happened to me for this reason. We really have no idea. We can't string everything together. We can't solve every equation. But what the Bible tells us is that history is not a collection of random events. Rather, it's the outworking of God's plan. Acts chapter 17 says it this way. For from one man, God made every nation of men. He determined the times for them and the exact places where they should live. Now that's the outworking. Now what's the plan? God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And what's interesting is you look through the scriptures and the pinnacle of all of these divinely scheduled events is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is why the same Paul to the church in Rome says at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
You see, Jesus always moves at the right time. So the application for us, I think, is very similar. And it's let's trust God's place and his pace. What I want you to know is this, friends, is that Jesus never panicked in his day. And he, ne- and he never panics in yours. He doesn't fret with how we fret. And the fact is, is I really struggle with this. In particular, the pace part. Sometimes the place also, just the placement of God's will, how, how he chooses things, why he chooses things. I find myself struggling more with the when. If something's right, I just think it should happen now. And when I don't see it happening now, I think, God, why? So often I find myself saying, God, are you seeing what I'm seeing? You need to act right now. I've prayed for many in our church family this week by name. And there's been many times I'm like, God, like right now, you just need to show up. Just show your face to this person. Show them that you're real. Right now, I need you to just just go and heal this child. Right now, I need you to just heal this marriage. I know these are, these are, these are good and noble and honorable things, and, and yet I'm routinely puzzled at God's pace. But this I have learned, and you see it in John chapter 7. It's this. God is never early because he is committed to building my faith. Number two, God is never late because he is faithful to his sovereign will. And number three is that when I doubt, God tells me to look at the cross as evidence and surety that he is really for me and not against me. And so this week, Providence, John chapter 7, the demeanor of Jesus in his day should propel us to live a life of faith in ours. To trust, to say, God, I don't understand why. I don't understand your when. But I've just got to trust your heart. I've got to trust that it's going to happen at the right time. Well, the second thing that I want you to see here in John 7, at least the last half of it, is this, is that Jesus moved towards us to satisfy our soul forever. So not only does Jesus always move at the right time, is that where he moved, he moved towards us. And he moved towards us in order to satisfy our soul. You see, it's interesting that these arresting officers, they know how to get the job done, and yet they continually failed. When we get to the place where they return to the Pharisees and the Sadducees with empty hands and Jesus is not with them, they say, where is he? Why did you bring him back or or come back empty handed? And they have only one excuse. And it's not, well, you know, if we did it, people are stirred up. It could cause a riot. No, what they say is no one ever talked like this. No one ever says the things that this man is saying. And so Jesus had hit a nerve in their own heart. There was something that they were missing. There was a spiritual thirst that they were experiencing. And all of a sudden, Jesus is saying things that may be even compelling to them. So what exactly did he say? Well, before I tell you what he said, let me show you the significance by telling you when he said it. In the Feast of Booths, it lasted for eight days. But the eighth day, they wake up and they just pack up their tent and they go home. So the big day was day seven. But even days one through six, they did the same thing. The priest would go to the pool of Siloam and they'd get some water. 
And then they would travel in a solemn procession to the temple. And what they would do is they would pour out the water that they had got at the pool at the base of the altar until the seventh day. On the seventh day, what they did was the exact same thing, except when they got to the altar, they would walk around the altar seven times and then they poured it out. And what they were doing here is really two things. They were looking backwards and they were looking forwards. Looking backwards, they were acknowledging God's provision of water for two million people on a camping trip for 40 years in the desert. They were saying, you made water where there's no water. And we acknowledged it then, and we're thankful for it, and we worship you because you are the only God who can do that. But they're also looking forward and anticipating the day of the Messiah. Because what they would do is when they would pour the water out, they would quote Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. And this is what it says. It says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And this is speaking from Isaiah, specifically of the day of the Messiah. So check this out. So here they come. We're actually told in John chapter 7, verse 37, it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day. So Jesus is waiting for day seven. Here they come. They're walking around seven times. They pour out the water and it says that Jesus stands up and then he yells in the temple these words. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What he's saying is this. You guys are reading Isaiah 12, 3 and I'm telling you today is that day. I'm standing right here. It's go time. It's right now. The Messiah is here. (laughs) You can imagine, right? The people who were loving on Jesus are now really loving on Jesus. And the people who were hating on Jesus are really hating Jesus. So what do we do with this? Two applications for us. The first is this, is let's come to Jesus and quench our spiritual thirst. He says, if anyone thirst, what this means is the only condition to come to Jesus is a recognition of need. I am thirsty. You see, our physical bodies were made to live on water. And without water, have you ever noticed how focused and desperate we get? Like when you get really, really thirsty, things that you thought were never an option, all of a sudden now they become an option. How you treat people, how you talk to people. When you get uncomfortable thirst wise, you can become a pain. Right? So can I. Let me just give you a little, little story. Right? Back when high school, I played football. And in August in Missouri, it's, it's like here. It's just hot and humid. And, and so we have two practices every day through August. We're in an afternoon practice. I remember just it was so hot. And they called the water break. And our little town in Missouri, they had a, it was like a water trough, really. It was just this great big thing. And there was a chain on the bottom. And if you pulled the chain down, all of a sudden it would send about 15 or 20 spigots of water, just sending water up so that a lot of people can drink at the same time. So the whole team, it was like 50, 60, 70 of us run over to get water. And all of a sudden this great big lineman, still remember Jeff, he runs through and he's literally pulling people and shoving people out of the way in order to get his place at the water. And he starts drinking and he passes out, right? Thirst creates desperation to where you treat people how you wouldn't normally treat people if you weren't that thirsty. Now look, what Jesus is saying is this. 
is just like our bodies get so thirsty because we need water that we behave a little bit differently. What he's saying is the same thing happens with our soul. You see, in the same way our souls were made to live on God, and without God we get focused and desperate just in a different way. We start building functional saviors, functional fountains. Where we reject God, we're not near God, and yet our heart is still so thirsty. And so what we do is we run for a million different things in order to hope that these things are going to satisfy our thirst. We run all over the earth to find these things. But Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. You see, Providence, look, this is not just talking about conversion, though that's true. If you've never trusted Christ, you trust Christ and the Holy Spirit comes in your heart. All of a sudden you receive a refreshment that you've never known. But this is also true for every believer who hears me speaking right now as well. Have you ever noticed that you wake up every single day and your soul is thirsty? It's not because Jesus left you. It's because you wake up thirsty. You were made literally to constantly go back to that well. What happens is this, is that if we do not go back to the well when we're thirsty and we go out the door, all of a sudden we find ourselves treating people very, very differently than we normally do when we are really, really happy in God. When God is near and we feel his peace, all of a sudden we can be loving and kind and generous in ways that are really unusual. And when we're not, we can be really cruel in ways that are really unusual. And this is what he's saying. If anyone's thirst, take that thirst and leverage it to run to me. This is why I said two weeks ago, it's so important that the first duty we have in our day is to run to God and make ourselves happy in God before we leave the door. It's to be with him. It's really available. It really is available. I promise it's available to you. See, Isaiah 55 verse one says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why labor for that which does not satisfy? You see, you and I, we drink this water by believing in Christ and by repenting of all of these functional saviors that have left us so thirsty. And so if you feel thirsty today, I would encourage you to leverage that thirst to run to him. Leverage it into a fuel that propels you to him. The second application, I think, for this point is also really, really important, and it's this. Let's also be a channel to share this water with others. I think that's what Jesus had in mind when he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he said this about the Spirit. And we get to John chapter 14 and chapter 16. We're going to learn a whole lot more about this. But John even says, now look, the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet because Jesus hadn't been glorified. When after Jesus rises from the dead, he's going to go to heaven. He's going to tell people to start praying. And then God sent his spirit down upon us. And God's spirit doesn't live with us. He lives in us. And this is what John's saying. Is this, is, this is what he meant. Is that God's spirit, when we're close to Jesus, God's spirit literally fills us to where we who were once so dry now become the river's mouth of everything that we once lacked. And it's not just for us. It's for others. So that we who once struggled with joylessness or a lack of purpose or shame. We now become the river's mouth of purpose and joy and forgiveness. Not that we are the source, but we're the channel. Have you ever noticed? I don't know why people do this. I think it's so interesting. I love human nature. That's why I probably do this. But sometimes I'm on Facebook and I see what people eat. It's the craziest thing. 
People go out to eat and they're so amazed and they're just certain that everyone's going to be amazed that they're having this amazing dining experience that they take a picture of their food before they eat it. Look, just eat your food, you know, just enjoy it. We don't need to be a part of that, right? But it's a lovely dinner. It is. You've done really well. Have you ever noticed no one ever takes a picture with a, like all set up, you know, all the forks and everything with two saltines? Like just here here you go. Here's, Here's two little crackers. Why? Because that's not impressive. And you don't really have a whole lot to give when you only have saltines. And I think that's what he's saying here. If you go out the door and your heart is still so dry because the only thing that you've eaten in Christ is two saltines, you're not the river's mouth for everything that people are going to need. If, however, you feast upon the Lord, you come to him and you recognize that your heart has been made happy in him. All of a sudden, there's a feast that you're now able to share. I think this is what Isaiah was talking about. Isaiah 55, verse 11. He says, you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Well, the third and last thing that I want to show you before we take the Lord's Supper is a hard one. And that is that Jesus coming placed himself as the dividing line for eternity. So not only does he always come at the right time, and not only does he come towards us in order to do us good, But the very fact that he did come actually places himself as the dividing line for authority. We see this in verses 40 to 52. You see there in verse 43, it says, So there was a division among the people over Jesus. Now hear me really carefully. We're almost done. The edge of Jesus' blade is so sharp that you cannot stand on it without taking a side. His claims will not allow you to stand in neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. John 5, 23 says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 8, 42, If God were your Father, you would love me. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, when Jesus was born, a few days later, his parents brought him to the temple. An old man named Simeon said this to Mary about him. He says, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And this is exactly what we see in John chapter 7. People are dividing one way or the other, rising and falling on the basis of Jesus' claims. You see, Jesus is the cornerstone on which we are to build our life. Now hear this carefully. Those who reject Jesus Christ and his foundation are bound to grow more opposed to him. The reason is because if he is who he says he is, then you have to do something with what he says he is. And when other people talk about him being the only way, if you don't believe that, it's really natural. It's only natural to start to oppose that. We do the same thing in other areas. We call him the greatest of all times in sports, right? It's Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time. Well, we don't know, right? But if I come out and I raise a person's name to the highest place, the greatest of all time, anyone who thinks that he's not feels obligated not only to raise someone else up, but also to bring him down. And so when Jesus, he places himself as the exclusive way, the dividing line over all of eternity, what happens is the Pharisees react just like you would expect. They call the guards deceived. They call the entire Jewish population in Jerusalem 
accursed, and they call one of their own, Nicodemus, biased simply because he brings up one of their laws. It's an amazing thing, and this is what happens to us, is when people read the claims of Jesus Christ, and then all of a sudden, they have to make a decision. If they decide not, I do not, what happens is they look at everyone else who does as either accursed, biased, or deceived. You see, the way that Jesus spoke and the exact nature of his claims make it increasingly irrational to speak nice things about Jesus while rejecting his deity. Let me say it another way. Jesus was not nice if he was not God. He was not a nice man if he lied to us. Because he said he was God. And so I want to encourage you, let's build our life upon the cornerstone of Christ. If you've never trusted him, we welcome you to do that today. But if you have, for those of us who have trusted Christ, we are fortified by the promise of God's word that the foundation on which we stand will neither collapse or crumble. It is a sure foundation for all eternity, one that we gladly and publicly confess to be the hope of our life as a church family. And this is what we get to do right now. For those who have trusted Christ, he has given us a way not only to remember our rescue, but also to proclaim without words our continued belief in Jesus Christ as the Lord's Supper. So for those who are going to serve us this morning, if you would come at this time. Jesus told us to take this bread and the cup as a reminder of the cross and as a confession of our faith. And so to take of this is to say, I know Jesus Christ is my own Savior and my Lord. That I'm believing in him. And I'm still believing in him. That he died, he was buried, and he rose again. So if you believe in Christ and are trusting him, you are welcome to partake. But if you have not trusted Christ, we ask you to let these pass. Because to take them is to treasure them. And as they're being passed, I would encourage you as Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians, to examine ourselves, to ask the Lord to search us and to confess our sin. So on that pivotal night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and a cup and we're told that he gave thanks. That's what we're going to do now. So would you pray with us, Ross?